I'm Aaron Ross Powell, and this is Reimagining Liberty, a podcast exploring the emancipatory and cosmopolitan case for radical social, political, and economic freedom. Chances are you've never heard of Don LeBoy. I certainly didn't run across him when I was getting into libertarianism in college, and it wasn't until years into my time working for the Cato Institute that I learned about him from my boss, David Bowes. But Lavoie is arguably the North Star for what the liberty movement needs to become if it wants to reestablish itself in America's shifting political landscape, and if it wants to be more than just a somewhat limited government version of conservatism. So for today's episode, I'm chatting with George Mason University professor Pete Betke, one of Lavoie's students. We discuss Lavoie's scholarship, his updating of Hayek's knowledge problem argument against economic planning, the problems of socialist calculation, and how to build a case for radical liberty within a politically left framework. In preparation for our conversation, I was looking at videos of and about Don Lavoie on YouTube, and I came across a a short one that you, and I think it was Chris Coyne, did about his two main books for, for Mercatus. And it has a lot of photos, Ken Burns-style photos, drift across the screen in it. And I was struck by just how many recognizable faces um, of, of important scholars today were in those photos. It was you know, it was like looking at Bill Walsh's coaching tree or something like that. Um, but at the same time, I know that when I was a young libertarian coming up through the scholarship, Don Lavoie was never on my radar. I hadn't heard of him. It wasn't until much later. Um, I know a lot of people in the liberty movement have never read him. Um, and so there's this there's this disconnect between his kind of the the students that he produced and the ideas that influenced them and then how well known. Um, so who is as a student of Don's, who was Don Lavoie and what was what was the core of his contribution? Well, it's a great question. Um, I think I'm going to start by giving you the unfortunate answer, which is that Don passed away very young. Uh, so he's 50 years old. Um, and so you didn't get the kind of works that he would have done later on. Like he had a, a book in process called Understanding Political Economy um, and several other, uh, you know, works along those lines that I think. Um, you know, young scholars such as yourself coming up uh, would have been exposed to. But the fact is, is that, you know, his major works were done in 1985. And so, you know, he had, you know what I mean? Like, so that that's his rivalry in central planning and national economic planning. They were published in 1985. These students that you're talking about were all students of his in the 80s when he was an assistant professor. Um, and uh, And a couple things happened um post uh before he passed away um you know he had three kids um and he was a devoted father and homeschooler and so a lot of his effort went into doing that as opposed to writing and and doing things and he left economics uh because he was frustrated with the way the economics department was operating and he went into a field of cultural studies which just doesn't have the same kind of traction of producing students in the same way that he did in economics. But in economics there as an assistant professor, 
you know, besides myself, you have Steve Horowitz and Emily Chamley Wright. Um, his last student was Virgil Storr. Uh, unfortunately, you know, he passed away when Virgil was, uh, you know, about two thirds through his PhD. And so then I was fortunate enough to then supervise Virgil finishing, but he really was a student of Don's. Um, and, and he carries forwards, forward that kind of, uh, program of Don's, um, you know, uh, Don had a lot of resistance to his efforts to try to improve the philosophy philosophical underpinnings of Austrian economics. And in a large part, what he did was to um, update the methodological arguments that Mises and Hayek were relying on in the 1930s and 1940s to what was the current conversation in the 1970s and 1980s. And so he shouldn't have had resistance. Um, he should have, in fact, been embraced as somebody who was updating and and improving and, you know, uh, but there were within the Austrian school uh, efforts to try to, you know, shut him down at some level. And I don't think he ever lost those debates because he died. Right. So it's not it, it's just like it's not like the debate was ever resolved. It fell on people like myself and, and Steve and, and Emily to try to carry on Don's you know, work. And we did in our own ways. And um you know, and whatnot. And so when people, when your young selves, you know, come along and people might read Steve or they might read Emily or they might read me, they're really reading Don. So that's the, the, the you know, a sad truth about science is sometimes, you know, the people that are the originator of ideas don't get the credit that they're due. Um, but I, 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 you know, at the moment I'm kind of talking around the sociology of all this. So let me just sort of get to what Don was about. Uh, very briefly. So uh, Don was a fascinating combination of the fact that he was a engineering computer science mentality. So he was a computer programmer of some skill. He went to, to uh, Worcester Polytechnic as an undergraduate and was a computer scientist. He was working as a computer scientist developing uh, basically, uh, you know, computer safety programs uh, for corporations to not get hacked and stuff. But he also was one of the first people to design a computer to be able to play music. And it was quite fascinating to him because he could get the computer to play, uh, you know, Bach, but you can't get the computer to play Miles Davis in some sense, right? Um, so this is a, a theme that comes back and over and over again with him. So he got really interested in economics because he had a summer job once, which was literally like a, a government boondoggle job. It was at a uh, rail stop that required you to uh, physically lift the gate and not lift the gate, but no one ever went on that track. So he started reading, uh, you know, uh, books in the summer and he stumbled upon read Henry Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson. And then in the back of Hazlitt's book, he has a list of books that you need to read. And he read, and one of them is Human Action. So he spent the summer getting paid by the New Hampshire government <laughs> to to lift a, a rail stop that didn't need to be lifted to read Human Action. And he became completely embraced in this whole sort of worldview uh, and uh, shifted out of being a computer scientist and ended up by becoming an economist, earning his PhD at NYU under Israel Kirzner. 
And uh, then he became an assistant professor at George Mason University, where they started a new program called the Center for the Study of Market Processes. And they were all assistant professors, um, you know, Jack High, Rich Fink, Don Lavoy, other people that were there at the time were John Ager, Suda Sonoy, uh, Tom DiLorenzo. Uh, these people were all in and out of the center. And Karen Vaughn was more or less the senior person involved in that. And Don's dissertation was this book, Rivalry and Central Planning. And it got published by Cambridge University Press. And in many ways, he and Larry White's books, both published by Cambridge, were the first books published you know, by the young generation of Austrian economists uh, that were in, you know, major publishing houses, you know, rather than, you know, sort of libertarian type publishing houses or whatever. And so uh, that was a significant, you know, uh, achievement. And then Lavoie got tremendous reviews you know, from major people in the field that recognized that he had done, you know, serious, you know, scholarship on these issues. And, and he basically reset the debate. Now, he was fortunate in that the world confer confirmed his theories, right? Because by 1985, when he published it, we're already starting perestroika in Russia. We already had like several years of the solidarity movement in Poland, uh, you know, and so there's a lot of, there's reforms in Hungary. A, a lot of people are admitting that central planning doesn't work and that somehow like all the various models, you know, didn't, didn't jive. And Don was right there to do that. And then, you know, the life cycle of a book like that means that, you know, by 1989, you know, his book is still fresh. And so he's, you know, one of the theorists of the 1989, you know, period and understanding and, and, and whatnot. And so, you know, again, if you were a Martian and, you know, and you went back to the late 1980s, early 1990s, Don Lavoie would have been on the top of your, your reading list. Um, but by the time, you know, a, ne a decade later, you know, Don's not, you know, on the top of the reading list, the, cha the, the issues have changed, you know, 9-11, I mean, Don passes away in 2001. But if you think about our current generation, you know, they don't even know that communism collapsed to them. It might as well be a Charlie Chaplin film, right? And so, you know, the Tiananmen Square is like a Charlie Chaplin film. But what they have in their mind is 9-11, the global financial crisis, the Occupy movement, uh, you know, the, 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 the problems of militarization of police, you know, all these things. Now, I'll shut up after this, but one of the things that's so fascinating to me is in Lavoie's book, National Economic Planning, if you read it closely, he actually is critical of this militarization. He gives us an alternative vision of what a libertarian society would look like. That's the last chapter of the book. And it's a much more, you know, inclusive, embracing. He, you know, he even recognizes the the issue that we must deal with our problematic past and reconcile with it and what's going on. And you know, he, he it's part of what his passion to address those issues. And so I think he's as relevant today as he ever was. And I'm really glad to have this conversation with you and apologize for that long answer. Yeah. As a little bit of intellectual background on just the the scholarship that he was involved with, he's 
he's participating in or extending the the socialist calculation debate, which had happened earlier. Can you for for listeners who might not be might not know what that is, can you I mean it's a it's a big thing, but is in give the thumbnail sketch of just what the social socialist calculation debate was before we turn to his contributions to it? Sure. So, you know, at the turn of the century, uh, socialism was the watchword, a turn of the 20th century, socialism was the watchword uh, uh, of the times. It was the thing that people thought was necessary in order to address the social ills that plague society, plague modern society, uh, you know, which are, you know, uh, from anything from, you know, unemployment to, you know, uh, poverty and and health and housing and you know working conditions and all of that um and so we're going to address those education we're going to address those social ills and karl marx was the most consistent thinker of all of the socialist uh you know sort of revolutionaries and his revolutionary idea was that you can only uh overcome the exploitation that exists in the system through transcending the system by getting a, a, a rid of the alienating ability of mankind. And that alienating ability is private property. So Karl Marx wanted to abolish private property. The, the best way to think about this is Marx criticizing the petty bourgeois socialists was he said that they were like the critics of Catholicism that wanted to get rid of the Pope. But if you get rid of the Pope, you still have Catholicism. So what Marx argued is you got to get rid of Catholicism, then there's no need for the Pope, right? So, so, so you see the analogy there. So you got to get rid of private property and the means of production um, in order to eliminate all of the issues with the modern society. Now, one of the key things about that was Marx thought you would rationalize production, right? So he didn't think you would abolish private property and then you just live in harmony but poverty. Right. So there used to be this old, you know, movie uh, called uh, The Gods Must Be Crazy, uh, you know, and and uh, where, you know, this society is existing, this tribal society. And then uh, like a glass Coke bottle comes in. Now, all of a sudden we introduce scarcity before they were all harmonious because there wasn't any scarcity. But now because there's this one good and they have multiple uses, they have scarcity. So they get conflict. They get all these kind of things like that. That was not Marx's vision. Marx's vision that we, would be that we would rationalize advanced production and we would have such a burst of productivity that our living standards would be on. We would transition from the kingdom of necessity, right, to the kingdom of freedom. So that's a key thing. Rationalization of production is necessary for the harmony of the interests, right? So you have to have this burst of productivity in order to get the harmony, which is, you know, what the transcendence is supposed to deliver. So into that came economists, right? So, okay, so, and, and, and the most harsh critic of this is Mises, who focused on this issue of the means ends. And so can the abolition of private property, a means, achieve the goal of rationalizing production? And Mises argued that without private property, you can't engage in rational economic calculation. If you can't engage in rational economic calculation, you're not going to be able to rationalize advanced production. Okay, so that's in a nutshell the idea. Now, in a more breakdown way for your listeners, 
one way to think about this is just when you're in a econ 101 class or an econ finance class and someone tells you to do a present value calculation and you just write down the formula that they give you for a present value calculation. Now, one of the things that you have to ask yourself is what are the background conditions to make that present value calculation work? Right. And so we never ask that question in class. We just have the formula. But what is required? So, for example, if if I told you to do a present value calculation, but there was no security of property because I could bop you on the head and take your investments in the future, that increases, you know, what the risk premium would be on the calculation in the first place, right? If I tell you that there's soft budget constraints, meaning that you can privatize your profits, but socialize your losses, well, that's going to change your calculation, right? If I tell you that, oh, the monetary unit is shifting around, that's going to change, you know, the way you have to do this. So just think about, you need to have property, right? Fiscal, you know, responsibility, and monetary, you know, soundness in just a simple way of thinking about this to do these calculations. And so to a large extent, Mises was saying, look, in order to engage in these calculations, you need these background institutions that you're that you're calling for the abolition of. And when you abolish them, you leave it just be so many steps in the dark, which means there's no way you can get the rationalization thing. So that sets off this huge debate that takes place for the next 50, 60 years in which it waxes and wanes. And Hayek jumps in, you know, different people are arguing. So in the beginning, Mises is arguing with people like Otto Neurath, you know, who are quasi-Marxist, Karl Polanyi, right, who's a quasi kind of, he's not really a Marxist, but he's kind of like a Marxist, right? He kind of, you know, some version of socialism. Jacob Marshak, you know, these are like people Mises is arguing with. And then, you know, the British get involved, and, you know, these now they raise at level of more sophistication of the argument. And then Hayek jumps in, you know, and he argues and then Hayek argues like, look, you're missing this critical point, which it's not a mechanical calculation. It's a contextual calculation that requires this generation of knowledge that only comes about through the process of competing. And so that's where Hayek gets his knowledge problem you know, argument. And so then that there, and so basically Mises and Hayek kind of by 1940s have said their piece, right, uh, of what they think. And they think they've won the argument, but other people think they've won the argument. And so it goes back in these different standard interpretations of the account. It's not like Mises and Hayek ever said they thought they lost the debate. Um, but, you know, in standard economics, mathematical economics, had assumed a lot of the things away that Mises and Hayek had talked about, like, for example, institutions. So a large part of the development of economics from 1950 to 1980 is the rediscovery of those institutions. So just think about it. There were people like I always say this to people about the history of economics, like, you know, Milton Friedman called himself a monetarist. Why was he a monetarist? Well, that meant because the Keynesians were the fiscalists. Right? They thought monetary policy was ineffective and that fiscal policy was the only thing effective. So it makes sense that Friedman is a monetarist because he's arguing the opposite position. Well, if you think about various things that all make up modern economics, like, for example, Armin Alchin and Harold Demsetz rediscovering the importance of property rights. Why did we have to rediscover the importance of property rights? Right? I mean, Aristotle criticized Plato 
right? So like, why do we need, because economics had pushed property rights to the side. But what's the kernel of Mises's argument? You need to have private property rights in order to have prices to be able to do the calculations. So a lot of the post-1950 era is all about rediscovering things that the Austrians had already been highlighting. Now, here's the, the issue that I want to sort of get across because it relates to Lavoie, is that what Hayek did was in the 1940s, he moved in two separate directions because of the way this debate was unfolding. One was he went into the philosophy of science. And that's his counter-revolution of science book. And that's his attempt to try to correct the way that people think about the way you should do social sciences. And that goes from, you know, counter-revolution to his books like Studies in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics, to his Nobel lecture, The Pretense of Knowledge, which is all about that. On the other hand, he goes in an institutional direction. So he writes in the road to serfdom about the relationship between democracy and planning. Then he writes the Constitution of Liberty, which is about the rule of law. Then he writes law, legislation, and liberty, which is about the power of the law versus legislation, which is privileges. And then he finally ends with the fatal conceit, which is about a philosophical anthropology of man. Like, you know, where, where do we get these mores and norms and through our evolutionary process? So he never left economics. That's the that's the misnomer, right? He, you know, the technical economist Hayek, who writes about money and business cycles, writes about capital theory, writes about the price system and the calculation. He never leaves economics, but what he does is he goes off in the direction of either justifying why it is that economists are blind to these points that he and Mises were raising. That's the philosophy point. And then he goes, oh, so one of the things that you're missing is these institutions. And so we need to recapture these institutions, meaning the relationship between democracy and the rule of law, the rule of law and, and liberalism, and ultimately law, legislation, and liberty. Um, and so he's, and he's like the first new institutional economist in that regard. So Lavoie in the 80s picks up on all of this. And he stresses the institutional context point and the calculation argument, but he also sees that people are still not getting the point. So that's why he's forced to go into philosophy of science. Why are you economists still blind to these very elementary points about property, prices, and profit and loss? You, you, you know, there must be something blinding you because you're not dumb, right? And what was blinding you was a philosophical error that led you into excessive formalism, excessive uh, uh, empiricism, and excessive aggregation, all of which took you away from the fact that we are who we study, right? In the human sciences, we are who we study. So Lavoie then tries to update the argument for the human sciences, right? And, and that's where he goes in the direction of hermeneutics and, and whatnot. And that's part of the reason why some people, you know, were very resistant in, in, a, in a strange way. And why he goes into cultural studies is because he's actually the person at the interface of taking this liberal ideas with critical theory. Right. So he was, you know, like today we talk and we have these debates and, you know, Phil Magnus will go on Twitter and go on a rant or whatever. And, you know, all these things like that. But the reality is that Lavoie was at the interface of having a conversation with these people. 
and trying to get them and, and, and see the commonality grounds between them and the issues that they cared about, which are fundamentally issues that we all should care about because they're about human freedom and human dignity. And that became like Lavoie's, you know, main idea. So that gives a nice opportunity to ask something that I, I intend to ask later, but now's a good time for it, which is a lot of my friends on the libertarian left, so our left market anarchists and and others who very much see libertarianism as originating on the left and being a better fit there than than on the right tend to claim Lavoie as as one of their own in terms of being either on or of the left. And now you've talked about him having these these conversations with on the critical theory side and so on. Is it is it accurate to see him as being of the left or positioning these arguments more in that direction? And if so, what is what does that mean? So similar to some of the rhetoric that you use uh that i've captured from listening to your show um and before when you were doing your show great show at cato and everything um so he was very concerned about the uh distortion of our ideas free market ideas by the political right including reagan uh, right. So remember that this is the great, he's writing during the great Reagan revolution. Right. And, um, and so at that time, I mean, I think it's, it's, um, in the same way that capitalism is somewhat discredited, uh, right now in the eyes of people, I think if you did a time hop and you went back to 1980s and after, and when Reagan won, and uh and pope john paul is in in there and and you know and you have the solidarity movement and and whatnot um the the left was in it was in um disarray uh in in the in the mid 1980s um and uh and the right was claiming uh basically the banner of free markets and lavoy was a radical free market person and so he was very concerned that the compromises of politics would discredit sort of the free market reforms that could be possible. And one of the things he cared most about was militarization. And uh, so at the same time that Reagan is there, there's also a big argument for, you know, the industrialization policies in the, uh, you know, in the former Rust Belt uh, that were fading. And so therefore we got to do those kind of things. So Don was fighting on both battles, you know, against the sort of political left that wanted to engage in industrial policy and the political right that was using the rhetoric of free markets, but was really doing, you know, rent seeking and militarization. And so Lavoie goes back to the earlier roots. So in that chapter, what is left, which is why your friends are are adopting that. Lavoie points out that the libertarian movement is a movement that goes all the way back to the levelers and was always on the left, always against privilege and power, always against slavery, always against you know the treatment, uh, the the ill treatment of 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 uh, marginalized groups uh, and and whatnot. You know the you know not only the original sin 
in the U.S., but then the treatment of the Native Americans in the U.S. You know, he goes after all of those kind of things before that was even, you know, something that a lot of libertarians talked about or whatever. Don's doing that. Um, and so I think that that's he wants to position himself on the anti-militarization, anti-privilege. you know privilege. He points out correctly that economics was born as a criticism of a privileged system, which is the mercantilist system. And so his argument is this modern political right is really just a modern version of mercantilism, not a modern version of laissez-faire capitalism. And so he, he's just trying to, you know, lay that argument out. Um, and, you know, my own view on this uh, is that, uh, you know, we were people were understanding this and it was having a kind of an effect. And then communism collapsed. And when communism collapsed, what happened was a, we got a lot of people on the free market side of things became co- intellectually complacent because now they thought they had won the battle of ideas. And all they had to do was win the battle of political implementation. All right. Milton Friedman, as brilliant as he is, I think, actually perpetuated this idea. We had won the battle of ideas. Now the problem was the problem of implementation. And I think one of the most important things to understand about politics is that politics, when it boils down, is just about minimum winning coalitions. Just trying to find minimum winning coalitions. And it's the reason why you end up by making strange bedfellows. Because you have to have two to defeat the one in politics. And so what happened was all of a sudden, we're not worrying about thinking creatively anymore about what would be necessary for a free society. What would be the right and wrong of compulsion of the state? You know, use our imaginations to think even more wildly about what might a free society really look about like. And instead, a lot of resources and efforts were sucked into politics. Which, you know, again, uh, I'm very biased on this and I'm probably going to get myself in trouble for this. But, you know, I, I, I read H.L. Mencken when I was a kid and I pretty much became convinced of H.L. Mencken when he says, you know, can you find a good man in Congress? And he explains using the metaphor with a uh, house of ill repute that you're not going to be able to find a good man in Congress. And, and I kind of buy that whole story, uh, you know, what Mencken argued there. And so I think that it's all about culture and what you need to do is, is not, uh, you know, worry about politics because politics is downstream from culture. And what happened was we seeded the culture when we thought we had won, when actually what we had just done was create the space for us to really have an impact on the culture. And we failed in that. And as a result, we're in a situation that we're in now. That's my history of modern libertarianism, is that we screwed up and we missed one of the greatest opportunities we ever could have had, which is the global collapse of communism and the global collapse of development planning. You have to put the two things together because what happened was everyone recognized that all these efforts to try to orchestrate planning was actually harming the very people that they were trying to help. They weren't alleviating poverty, right? And so we needed to open up the space, and we had that space to really make a significant contribution. And, uh, you know, we, we kind of threw it away because we didn't focus on creatively enough um, about the, the, the free society. And I think all our organizations did that. It's not just like one, you know, they just stopped 
doing what they were doing prior and they did something else. And that includes, you know, not just heritage, which, you know, now is completely off the rails, but, uh, you know, Cato, Fink at, at Citizens for Sound Economy, you know, everything just became about how can I get, you know, this legislative assistant to try to help push this policy with their member and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And we might win on a small margin. And you end up by getting someone like a Paul Ryan, who at one time was very principled libertarian, become just an everyday politician, ordinary politician in D.C. That's not because Paul Ryan's a horrible person. It's because that's the nature of the incentives that are faced in the system. You know, I'll pick up on on that because this is one of my hobby horses um, is I think that it's not just that with the the fall of communism and a belief that we had won the battle of ideas, we kind of ceded the cultural questions or stepped out of the the cultural debate and therefore let let conservatives within our movement or adjacent to it um, take over. I think it's that the reason that we were able to have these arguments or or join forces with the conservatives and people more on the right on the on the ideas that say Milton Friedman thought he had won on in the first place was because those ideas were not seen as a cultural threat by by conservatives at the time. And so I think one of the reasons you know, one of the profound changes we've seen, you mentioned heritage and this is this is very much a a thing that has happened at heritage is one of the profound changes we've seen in the conservative movement especially in the Trump years and since, but it was going on before that, was a turn against the ideas of Milton Friedman or Reagan or Goldwater um, or whomever else held them in you know a, a principled or kind of foggier way, a turn against the the free markets um, and and against planning and towards more government intervention, industrial policy. There's increasing calls on the right for industrial policy, and I think a lot of that was because they were willing to accept free markets when they saw free markets as one a mechanism for tremendous wealth creation. Um, two, I think there was always a we like them because they upset the left angle to it, or they're they're the op, they're the antithesis of communism, and we don't like the commies, you know. Um, and three, because markets weren't, they didn't see markets as leading to a culture that was in tension with conservative cultural preferences. And so markets weren't a threat. Um, and now a lot of the calls that you're seeing are, you know, so DeSantis cracking down on Disney and that kind of stuff is because the, the cultural dynamism that markets unleash uh, has meant that the culture has shifted away from traditional conservative preferences and ways of living. And so now markets are, even if they produce wealth, they're doing damage and we're going to turn against them. And so I think it's it's that what we needed to be doing, we, the liberty movement, needed to be doing all those years was saying the cultural changes unleashed by markets are also good and also something to be embraced and to be celebrated. And that dynamism is really important because that would have – I think that would have clarified the distinctions between us and and the conservatives much earlier. So that is one of Lavoie's strengths. 
um, was that he understood that aspect about the liberating aspect. So he was, you know, very explicit about issues having to do with, you know, race, gender, um, inequality, all these kind of issues and, and the issues of dignity and respect. Um, so I don't think it's any mistake, for example, that uh, Steve Horowitz, when he went to St. Lawrence as a student of Don's, taught a freshman seminar in which he then worked with, you know, and he worked on feminist economics and things like that and wrote his book on Hayek theory of the family. Um, when I taught at NYU, I taught an honors course on race, gender, and income inequality. Um, and, you know, it wasn't just Charles Murray and, you know, I, right. I mean, it was actually reading all the, 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 the other side and, and discussing and debating like what they had to offer and, and these kind of questions like that. Um, Emily Chamley Wright, of course, teaching at Beloit and, uh, you know, working with students there, which is, uh, you know, both, both Emily and I more so than Steve, you know, teaching at NYU, NYU is a, a you know, a very large, uh, you know, university has a very, uh, liberal, uh, you know, in the American sense of the term, uh, kind of, you know, student body. And, you know, it's not like I was teaching back at, I went to Grove City College. I went to a, a you know, a small, you know, uh, college in Western Pennsylvania in which when they did the mock vote in 1980, Jimmy Carter came in third, right? So Ed Clark came in second, Ronald Reagan, you know, like that. So, you know, that's a different world. I never, I never taught in that kind of environment. It's a misnomer that people have about George Mason because our economics department is so well known for being free market or whatever. But the reality is, is that the school is 37,000 students. It's a state university. You know, it has, it has, it, it, it's not a conservative bastion in any kind of stretch of the imagination. Um, it's just your normal state university. Um, but, you know, both Emily and I uh, taught a lot of students that are, you know, we're on the decidedly on the left and, and, uh, you know, you're working with them and trying to communicate and talk to them about ideas. And, uh, that's all from Don. Don stressed that with us. Um, and, uh, and because of the concern, so Don, you know, this is not something new. Um, I learned this when I was at Grove city, so it's not something Don taught me, but we, Don stressed this idea of judging societies by how well they treat the least advantaged in those societies. So, you know, how well is our prison system working? So right now we have a crisis. We've had more more uh, uh, prisoners die in custody over the last two years than we've had. Right. And we, we really need to think about, like, what the hell's going on? Like they're dying in custody, right? Now, a large part of it is drug overdoses, but a large part of that is because during COVID, we shut down like, you know, their drug counseling, you know, programs and things like that. So they didn't have access to normal healthcare. But same thing with anything else. Like you look at society, you look at the way it treats, you know, um, the least advantaged, you know, if, if a society is is one that is cruel, it's cruel. And that sensitivity was something that Lavoy really stressed. And what he promised was a libertarian society, you know, which invokes not just the market, but also the non-market sector, is one that actually should be not either infantilizing the least advantage or ignoring the least advantage. 
but instead finding ways to show them dignity and empower them, right? And, and, and work with them and see them as one another's dignified equals. And so Don always stressed those kind of issues, which are now back in the forefront. So, you know, like when you talk about, you know, trans rights or whatever, Don would have been, you know, on the forefront of that because you have to recognize those people. Now, you know, there's complicated questions in all this stuff having to do with adulthood and decisions like that and everything, you know, like, you know, but the reality is, is that assume that we're just talking about a world of adults, you know, all of the demands that have been made about the, the, that trans people make are demands that dignity requires treating one another. Right. And so, you know, you know, if, 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 you know, you just recognize people for who they are um, and, and, and go from there, people are people and we have to love them however they are. Right. And so that's a key issue, I think on all this. And Lavoy was a, a front runner of that. And he stressed those kind of things and you see it in Steve and, you know, Emily, um, you know, Steve was very vocal publicly, you know, so he took a different persona than say Emily or myself or Dave Perchicko. Uh, Dave Perchicko is actually a forerunner, very close to Don, but he's a very private person. So unless you read his books, you know, you're not going to know him. And his books are, you know, academic books, right? They're up on shelves somewhere and people don't do it. Steve was on, you know, use social media. You know, he's a Facebook guy. He was on, you know, he liked to be on YouTube, you know, and, and that kind of stuff. And so as a result, a lot of people saw Steve, but I think when you see Steve, you're seeing Don. And, and that's how, you know, when you asked that question earlier on, you know, Steve had a big impact on a generation of people. Uh, and that and unfortunately Steve died young, you know, it's just a tragedy. And so in 20 years, you know, hopefully because difference between Don and Steve is that there's very little record of Don on YouTube, right. And things like that, Steve, you'll be able to see Steve and live with Steve, you know, 20, 30, 40 years from now, uh, in a way that you can't with Don. I find it tragic that we don't have more of Don, especially in the classroom because he was an amazing professor like a, like, like a, just a really, really good professor. And we only have this one video of him giving a talk on Marxism, you know, where he's, you know, like, that's the only video we have of him and giving this lecture on Marxism and central planning. And, and it's just, uh, it's sad. Um, cause I wish that we had more videos of him talking about the variety of issues he cared about. I want to pivot a bit because so my friend Josh Amons suggested that I ask you about this and in, in the context of Don LaVoy. And then I think just yesterday you tweeted out a paper you co-authored on it, which is that the issue of techno-socialism and, and this question of – because part of the problem that the knowledge problem identifies is the planners can't know enough to plan well. Um, and so localized knowledge is, you know, we need to draw on localized knowledge in a way that they can't, but technology's become awfully sophisticated. We've all, I think, you know, in this last year played with these various like mind blowing AI tools that will generate smart text or new images from massive amounts of data and do incredibly interesting things with it. Like, is it the case that maybe 
Mises and Hayek and Lavoie won the socialist calculation debate because in 1985, computers kind of sucked, um, but they don't anymore or they're getting in a good – they're getting the direction where they don't and where therefore planning becomes more not just feasible but potentially desirable because they can be smarter than even you know our localized knowledge. Yeah, so – First, let me say that uh, it's important to remember that Don was a computer guy, right? So one of the first books that we had to read uh, from Don when we started working with him was Herbert Dreyfus's old book, What Computers Can't Do, uh, because Don was trying to get us to think about knowledge and the nature of what knowledge is. Now, the issue here is that if this was just a computational difficult problem, if that's what the calculation argument was, that it was that it was computationally difficult, then it would be in fact now perhaps solvable, right? By even though clunky, right? Even the best computers admit it would be clunky to solve it, but they could solve it, right? They could do it. But Lavoie's argument was is that look, and, and this is before even this modern literature um, does this stuff. He has a paper in 1986 that in the paper that you reference, we cite, that I would recommend your readers to look at in which he talks about these issues having to do with computers and everything like that. But let me let me um, sort of give a little bit of background on some of this stuff. So one of the first things is John Searle's Chinese room test, right, which is an argument about whether or not AI can actually simulate human knowledge. And the idea is the Chinese room test is that imagine you have this box and the, inside the box, you have an individual that knows all the, 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 uh, the, the rules of Chinese and translation. And you give it an English sentence and it spits out this, the, the sentence now in Chinese, you know, letters. The question is, does the person in the box know Chinese language? All right. And the argument is, is that that's what AI is like, but it doesn't really know the language. It doesn't have, it has syntactic knowledge, but not semantic. It doesn't understand meanings, nuance, all these things like that. And this is part of what Lavoie stresses by what he calls the tacit dimension, that this is part of the judgments that are going into market. So it's not just the computations, it's also the judgment of the man on the spot that he thinks that that's where, uh, you know, there's an entrepreneurial opportunity. And if he's wrong, then, you know, someone else takes the resources and, and does it somewhere else in that competition. The other way to think about this is the difference between wicked learning environments and kind learning environments or in, or a, a, a kind learning environments being environments in which the parameters are fixed and wicked ones where the parameters are free. So the easiest way to think about this is try to watch robots play soccer. All right? It, it, it's silly. Watch a robot play chess. It could be brilliant. Right? And the reason is is because the parameters in the game of chess are fixed. But the way the soccer ball comes to you is actually not fixed. It's not an algorithm. It depends on how the previous person just hit it and the spin that they have on it. So Ronaldo, a fantastic soccer player, has to adapt and adjust constantly to the parameters shifting around him. 
or Federer who just retired, right? Federer hitting a different backhand or whatever. Yeah, you know, there's a technique and there's a certain strategy that's set, but the way the ball comes to him at different times in different places requires him to adapt and adjust on the fly and Robots aren't very good at that. So the question is, what what is the economic environment like? Is it more like a wicket learning environment or is it like a kind learning environment? If it was like a kind learning environment, then, you know, okay, fine. Then we robots can beat grandmasters in chess. But if it's a wicket environment, then they're like very, very bad tools. Now, what could, a, what could computers do for us then? They can actually be helpful tools in making our judgments. So it's computers in combination with humans that actually might be helpful, but not for planning overall, but for positioning myself to do better in my adaptations and adjustments, right? So again, Tom Brady is dealing in a world where it's a wicked learning environment, but he looks on this thing every time, right? And goes like this. I, I saw Aaron Judge the other day trying to get his 61st home run, and right, and they brought out a new pitcher that he hadn't faced before. And what did he do? He went over to the dugout, and they called up like the comp- compu stats, right? And they say, look, so many percentage of time he throws this ball, that ball, whatever. He didn't hit his 61st home run, but he went up there with some kind of knowledge, right? And and that he had. So it's a useful tool in maybe helping us plan our lives and plan our businesses, but not plan the entire economy. And so what we try to do in the techno-socialism, which is co-authored with my good friend and colleague, Rosalino Candela, um, is we, you know, sort of look into these modern efforts to see whether or not they've taken account of these kind of issues. And it turns out, you know, spoil alert, you know, they basically still try to deal with the calculation problem as if it's an advanced computation problem. And it's not, it's, it's something different. And so this leads to us to emphasize more contextual nature of our knowledge, human judgment, uh, appraisement, these kind of issues that are all involved. And this tacit dimension of, of human interactions which are beyond our ability to, as Hayek put it, you know, put into a statistic. I don't know if that makes any sense, but yeah. But again, Lavoie was all over this, like in the 80s. So it's like, you know, again, you know, you, you know, I read this, I read this most recent literature. You know, I did a whole big volume on the calculation debates. Like it's a, you know, nine volume or 10 volume reference work that, you know, is ridiculous. In fact, it was my first exposure to uh, Amazon that pissed me off because one of my fraternity brothers from college saw that I had this reference volume that came out that was worth thousands of dollars. And he uh, signed on to Amazon to write a review and gave me one star because he said he was the first member of our uh, of our fraternity that ever joined. That's the name that he used. And then he said, and he said he was from Jakarta, Indonesia. And he said, you know, I work for the central bank and I bought this book and it bankrupt our entire economy. And like, that's what he put as the review. And I'm like, take the damn review off, you jackass. But, but anyway, I was like, my God, you know, these, they're going to do these reviews and there's no vetting mechanism on this system for doing this. What the hell? And anyway, so I, I have this 10 volume reference work and, you know, we have all of the debates up to 2000. So I'm pretty much aware of all the arguments that are going on from 1900 to 2000. 
And so now, you know, techno-socialism, you know, what's the new thing? You know, what are they arguing? Have they found a new technique? Have they addressed it? And, I, you know, again, I, I don't mean to, to be, you know, flippant, but what happens is they basically think Mises was making a computation argument. They think Langa didn't answer correctly because he didn't have a computer, like what you just said. And then, and then now we have supercomputers. So what the hell is the problem? Let's solve the computations. I just, I just read a, a, a paper yesterday on this same thing. And it, 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 it's bizarre in the assumptions that it makes because it says, look, there's two problems that we face. One of them is production. The other one is consumption. So we need to produce at the least cost technologies, and we need to produce what the consumers want, right? And they say, oh, okay, here's the problem. Let's assume we know all the technologies. And then say, oh, we have a real problem with innovation. Innovation creates a problem to our system. But that means we can't do it by economics, but we'll just allow the engineers to forecast what the innovations will be. And then, you know, so do you understand, like, they miss the whole point about what's going on. And so I'm like, I'm reading, I'm like, how do you respond to this? Anyway, that's that's the state of the literature at the moment. In the, in the minutes that we have left, um, Don's books came out. This was the mid-'80s. Um, it's... There still is some relevance, but it's it's been a while. He has his his students out there carrying forward his uh, legacy and projects. But so for for listeners now, what is your pitch? I suppose for going back, the, those those two books are available from Mercatus has put them out in relatively new editions. What's the pitch for going back to, to the original source? So I, I should you know mention that my most recent book, which is also available for free at Mercatus, um, it's a collection of my essays in the 2000s with a new introduction and new conclusion. Um, and that um, uh, you know book is called Struggle for a Better World, and it's dedicated to Don's uh, and and uh, my fellow students of Don. And so it's an effort to try to carry forward that program. Um, I think Don's uh, work uh, is especially national economic planning. So the book, uh, uh, Rivalry and Central Planning, is a very subtle and technically sophisticated work, which is really for economists. So you'd have to really be a professional economist to grasp what's going on there in a lot of ways, because you have to understand the technical sides of the arguments that he's arguing against and what are the implications. But National Economic Planning is a much broader book, uh, and it deals with a much broader kind of set of more popular criticisms of markets. And I think a lot of those same criticisms are coming back today uh, in terms of the, you know, the, the critique of monopoly and other kinds of things that are floating in the air. And so Lavoie is surprisingly very relevant, uh, even to this day. And, you know, you would just have to substitute, you know, the different people. The rise of, of industrial policy is very similar to what, you know, Cass is arguing with, you know, the rise of, you know, industrial policy to protect, you know, American interests. Or um, And so we have these kind of uh, overlaps. Um, and I think that last chapter remains extremely powerful chapter on, 
you know, what is left? What is the true meaning of a radical libertarian position to hold? But I think that Lavoy ends again with questions for us. And so, you know, the true scientific attitude is really laid out by Feynman when he says that you should never worry about questions that you cannot answer, but always worry about people who offer answers that can't be questioned. And so, the, the, you know, Lavoy ends giving us new questions to think about, and therefore we can go forward with the arguments. And I think that, again, you know, Emily's work that she's doing right now on the four corners of liberalism, that's very much a Lavoy project. You know, my book on the struggle for a better world is very much a Lavoy project. Steve's work, you know, especially if you listen to him talk in that very last interview when he won the Julian Simon Award and the way that he thinks about things. I mean, think about that. He was he was just like Don, you know, stricken with cancer and yet still optimistic that science might find an answer and kept on that going and all that. Um, you know, one of my most intimate conversations with Don was after 9-11. So he dies in November of that year. And so he's, you know, he's very ill. But we sat in my office and closed the door uh, and talk because he's worried about the future of his kids. It's the first time I've ever seen Don pessimistic. Never was a pessimist. He always thought that liberty would win out. But he was pessimistic because he thought this would bring rise to the militaristic state and, you know, and, and the surveillance state and that that would threaten our liberties. And, you know, he was right, right? I mean, and so, you know, it, it's, it's uh, um, I think that there's so much work for us to do and we could just if we could just attract the best and the brightest to think about what a true radical libertarian society would look like and start from the basic idea that we are one another's dignified equals and just work out from that i think that that you know is an amazing project that don had and uh and so i think it, it should attract the best and the brightest among us Thank you for listening to Reimagining Liberty. This show is listener-supported. If you'd like to become a member, gain access to our Discord community, and listen to every new episode two weeks before its public release, look for the link in the show notes or head to reimagininglibertycom slash subscribe. Subscribe.